The Window on the World, an international press review by the European Democratic Party, bringing you weekly news and commentaries that matter. Welcome to the 11th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Today is Friday, November 4th, and in this podcast, we will hear the best editorials from around the world on the state of the global economy and rising inflation, the outcome of the Brazilian presidential elections, and the course of the war in Ukraine. Let's get started with the first series of editorials. Let's get started with the current status of the global economy and the trend of inflation. The first commentary on the topic comes from German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung. Journalist Lisa Neinhaus analyzes the role of the European Central Bank in its attempt to curb inflation. On Wednesday, the ECB raised interest rates significantly again, 0.75 percentage points. The interest rate is now 2%. Who would have thought that just a few months ago, after years of zero and negative interest rates, an ECB president, Christine Lagarde, says she intends to continue on this path. Despite this, however, inflation is rising, and it is rising even as the ECB is taking action. According to Ninehouse, the ECB has made the right choice, albeit belatedly. The effects of the monetary policy adopted will not be felt for a long time. In addition, the central bank's ability to influence inflation is challenged by the external factor that is the war in Ukraine. It is still possible to limit inflation without risking an economic collapse. But even more important is that the ECB, now that it is still possible, does not deviate from this path. Inflation, moreover, has a strong destabilizing power over political systems because it makes many people poor but also some very rich, and quite unfairly so. Therefore, the columnist concludes, high inflation is often perceived as unfair and is considered harmful to democracy. We cross the border with the next editorial and go to the French newspaper Le Monde. Economist Patrick Artis explains the five risk factors that could escalate into an economic crisis. The first risk is a transformation of bank loans into risky bonds, But since the banking crisis of 2008, banks are much more cautious in these transactions. The second risk of financial crisis comes from public debts in the Eurozone, particularly those of countries that pay a high-risk premium and have low potential growth, such as Italy, the columnist explains. The third risk factor comes from life insurance in the Eurozone, The sharp rise in interest rates could push savers out of old policies in exchange for new ones. Companies would then face large capital outflow. The fourth risk is that of losses that some investment funds might suffer from their investments in risky debt. Finally, Artis concludes, we must not forget the risk of crisis in emerging countries, those that export commodities at high prices and have accumulated dollar reserves find themselves as interest rates rise in a favorable position. But, on the contrary, those who are importers of raw materials and are indebted to dollars are in dire straits. Instead, the last editorial on the subject of the economy takes us outside Europe and into the British newspaper, The Financial Times. We are watching another era come to an end, argues columnist Sarah O'Connor. Central banks around the world are raising rates to combat inflation. So what will we remember of the age of cheap money? 
when interest rates were lower? The answer probably depends on who you are. If you were a homeowner, there was the benefit of having your mortgage payments reduced, thus reducing the impact of wage stagnation. People who owned houses had the weird feeling their properties were earning more than they themselves were. People who weren't on the housing ladder watched the bottom rung move further away. The car market also changed. Popular were personal contract purchase schemes, which allowed customers to pay a deposit and a monthly fee. Low interest rates also encouraged the rise of initially loss-making startups, such as Uber, Deliveroo, and Getter. Then there was the expansion of buy now, pay later companies, which partner with retailers to give customers the option to pay for their stuff via interest-free installments. Now all these digital startups are under pressure. Their stock price has plummeted, as has the financial valuation of some. For that reason, the journalist concludes, I think that the most enduring image of the era of cheap money will be the recent announcement that customers can now pay for a delivery takeaway in installments through Klarna, an app for installment payments online. It's hard to escape the impression of two drunks propping each other up at the end of a long party. Next, let's talk about the outcome of Brazil's presidential election. Brazilians were called to the polls last Sunday and voters rewarded the leftist leader of the Workers' Party, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, more commonly known simply as Lula. Lula had previously served as president of Brazil from 2003 to 2010. However, the result showed Brazil to be a sharply divided country. In fact, Lula's margin of victory was just under 1%, having received 50.9% of the vote. Defeated then the outgoing far-right president, Jair Messias Bolsonaro, who still garnered 49.1% of the vote. The first editorial on the Brazilian elections also comes from across the ocean and more specifically from the American newspaper The New York Times. At last, for the sake of our collective mental health, we can say that Mr. Bolsonaro has been beaten, is the thought of columnist Vanessa Barbara. The past four years under Mr. Bolsonaro showed us how low a nation could go, and we're desperate to emerge from the swamp of political despondency. The political debate has changed a lot in the last nine years, Barbara explains. Whereas before Brazilians took to the streets to demonstrate in favor of free public transport, now the public debate focuses on conspiracy issues such as the presence of tiny robots in COVID-19 vaccines. With Bolsonaro's appearance on the political scene, a dam of repressed right-wing extremism burst. Day after day, the integrity of public discourse has been liquefied by conspiratorial claims, turbocharged by social media and encouraged by Mr. Bolsonaro. Despite Bolsonaro's defeat, his influence will still be felt in the country. Indeed, the far right has greatly increased its presence in the two chambers and institutions. The task before Lula will not be easy, and he may be forced to rely on support from the center parties with the risk of corrupt favor-swapping again. Lula's victory represents a challenge, but also an opportunity for the Brazilian people, who Brazilians should be able to return to a discussion of more urgent topics, such as the country's housing deficit, public education, military police and racism. The next editorial takes us back to Europe and to Spain to the El País newspaper. For the Spanish editorial board, the Brazilian election will have an impact on the rest of the world. 
Not only is Brazil central to international politics as the largest economy in South America, but it can also boast immense geographic and demographic dimensions. In particular, however, it mattered the centrality and universality of the dilemmas faced by Brazilian citizens when it came to choosing between a second term for far-right figure Jair Bolsonaro or leftist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. At stake was the possibility of correcting to some extent the disastrous path of climate change. Bolsonaro had in fact launched the most egregious deforestation operation in the Amazon rainforest, the largest rainforest in the world. Confidence in science was at stake. Bolsonaro promoted several conspiracy theories against coronavirus pandemic prevention measures as well as against vaccines. There was at stake the effectiveness of the system of liberal democracy and evil civil coexistence in open and cohesive societies, all aspects of Brazilian society that Bolsonaro has always opposed. For these and other reasons, Lula's victory is important, not least to send a message against the rise of illiberalism and authoritarianism in Europe. Brazil is the country of the future, the Spanish journalist concludes, but now it is also the country on which the future of the planet and the ability of our societies to govern themselves civilly and democratically largely depend. The last editorial comes from the United Kingdom. According to Richard Lapper, columnist for Britain's The Guardian, the country that Lula da Silva will lead will be a very different one from what it was when he took office at the beginning of 2003. One constant in this election has been the errors of the polls, which opinion polls have consistently underestimated the support that Bolsonaro enjoys. Lula still triumphed, however, and owed his victory to votes from 10 poor northeastern states. Polls show that those living on the incomes of less than $400 a month were more likely to vote for Lula, and that anyone better off than that tended to favor Bolsonaro. Overall, right-wing parties increased their representation in the lower house from 240 to 249 deputies, while Lula's party can count on 141 deputies. That means that he will probably need to strike deals with exactly the same political leaders, the notorious self-serving conservative politicians of the big center, who have been allied with Bolsonaro over the past two and a half years. The leaders of the central parties, Lapper argues, will surely demand a heavy price in return for their support. Lula will take over a deeply divided and troubled country, the columnist concludes. To succeed, he is going to need all his famed skills as a negotiator. Next, we'll talk about the progress of the conflict in Ukraine. The first article comes from the German newspaper Die Zeit. For journalist Alice Bota, it is remarkable that this catastrophe in the heart of Europe has not upset some people, let alone shaken them. For them, arms supplies to Ukraine would not change anything and must be stopped. Negotiations are needed immediately. According to the columnist, negotiations are necessary but they cannot be separated from sending arms to the Ukrainians, who use them to defend themselves against the Russian invader. For those who oppose sending the weapons, they only prolong the suffering of the Ukrainian people and that Russia would be ready to negotiate, as was the case with the grain deal. 
Yes, the agreement works because it doesn't cost the Russians anything. It benefits them a lot and it brings in billions. In relation to Ukraine, however, the Russian position has not changed. On the contrary, the Kremlin wanted to annex parts of Ukraine, organizing referendums that were held at gunpoint. It is true, armed supplies cannot be the only solution. But thinking about solutions without them, while the Russian side wants to destroy Ukrainian statehood, would be imprudent and dangerous. To force Ukrainians into negotiations now is to ignore Russia's goals. For Bota, in conclusion, when Ukrainians lay down their arms, when they are under Russian occupation, their suffering does not cease. Then not only is there no peace, but there is no hope for peace either. We'll move to Southern Europe with this next commentary and go to the Spanish newspaper El País. For David Truba, Putin's latest speech revealed to the world his true intentions in the conflict, other than territorial, and brought out his allies in the West. For the Kremlin leader, the one in Ukraine is also a struggle for customs and the cons of the Western way of life. Putin wants to shape people's private lives as well as fight what he considers to be the moral decay of democracies. His obsession is to eliminate homosexuality and to bring the lack of religious values back towards dogmatic orthodoxy because he fears that the contagion effect could wipe out his imperial mission. According to the Spanish columnist, Putin was reportedly taken aback by the West's united response in the belief that his proximity to the Trump presidency had undermined Western cohesion. More recently, the former Italian premier Silvio Berlusconi also recalled his personal sympathy with the Russian president. The parties of democracies that support the marginalization of homosexuals, transgender people, the imposition of religious values in public life, the manipulation of schooling and the idea of Preemptive ethnic cleansing are Putin's partners in more than one local war. They share his culture war. These countries like Belarus and Iran persecute expressions of dissent with prison sentences, when not directly violent repression. In conclusion, Putin's words help bring out of their lairs many partners who dared not openly support him because it would have been unphotogenic to do so while children and the elderly die in Ukraine. These international partners spread and propagate in their political approaches the same reactionary anger expressed by the Russian leader. We remain in Southern Europe with the last editorial of the day and will go to the Italian newspaper Corriere della Sera. Paolo Lepri points out how the isolation of Russia is now widespread throughout Europe. Speaking on live television, the German head of state, Frank Walter Steinmeier, said many clear things to a country that is hard years ahead of it and that must know how to deal with the emergencies of this moment. Steinmeier, who also served as foreign minister, noted that there is no longer room for old dreams. The Russian invasion of Ukraine thus marked the ultimate failure of years-long diplomatic efforts as Russian society became increasingly repressive and took serious steps backward in terms of civil and political rights. In fact, German-Russian ties grew stronger, especially in terms of energy not least because of selfish reasoning that too frequently inspired this and other choices. Of course, Lepri admits the German president's role is more symbolic than anything else. But 
this does not mean that his example cannot be followed. And that brings us to the end of the 11th episode of the second season of The Window on the World. Thank you again so much for following us and we look forward to seeing you next Friday, again with the best editorials from Europe and the rest of the world. This week's editorial work was edited by Daniel Rutza and at the microphone, it's me, Gail Rago. See you next week.